Hello, and welcome to Law, the Universe, and Everything. I'm your host, Pacifico Soldati. The show explores topics from law and business to consciousness, spirituality, and everything in between. We feature accomplished leaders across many fields to help you get more out of your life. You can learn more and stay up to date at theluepodcast.com. If you're not familiar with my background, I'm a helper, parent, marketer, attorney outlaw, certified mediator, story brand guide, omnist, yoga teacher, and a former paratrooper and award-winning army chef at the 82nd Airborne Division and U.S. Army Special Operations Command. I'm the founder and CEO of the Soldati Group, a marketing agency helping startups, small businesses, and law firms leverage the power of story to grow their businesses. Law, Universe, and Everything is a production of the Soldati Group. All opinions expressed by the hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of the Soldati Group or guest employers. This podcast is for information and entertainment purposes only, and these discussions do not constitute legal or investment advice. Today's episode is brought to you by Eliances, a networking community that brings together some of the best and brightest minds from around the world. If you want to bring your network and net worth to the next level, Eliances could be the missing piece that you've been seeking. With weekly private roundtables, regular deal-making meetings, and uniquely inspiring and informative events, Eliance offers an experience unlike any you've ever had before. To learn more, visit eliances.com. That's E-L-I-A-N-C-E-S dot com. That's Eliances, the only place where entrepreneurs align. My guest today is Damon Burton. Damon is a husband, father of three, and founder of SEO National, a seven-figure SEO agency. Damon has also been a Forbes contributor and authored a book on SEO called Outrank, which serves as a guide for those who want to dominate Google search results without paying for ads. He's been featured on BuzzFeed and USA Weekly and has optimized websites for Inc. 5000 companies, NBA teams, and businesses featured on Shark Tank. After beating out a billion-dollar company by outranking their website on Google, he knew he was onto something with his SEO efforts and used those skills to build an international search engine marketing company. Having started his business right before the 2008 recession, Damon is familiar with growing a business in some of the most challenging times we've seen in recent memory, and those lessons are all the more apt for our current state of affairs. And if all that weren't enough, he's even the proud owner of an epic beard. Welcome to the show, Damon. Thanks for being here today. I held it together until that last one. Yeah, congrats on the podcast launch. I appreciate the opportunity to chat with you. Yeah, absolutely. So excited to have you. So obviously, the, one of the things that stood out to me the most, like, I just got to hear your David and Goliath story, like taking down a billion dollar company at their own SEO. What was that like? How'd you do it? You know, what happened after? It's a bit of awesomeness as you would hope, but it's also a little anticlimactic. So so I don't know that it's quite David and Goliath, but the funny part is it was certainly not as David and Goliath because it was a billion dollar company. So who it was ABC and the network and they got all sorts of TV shows and everything else. What, What it was about. Gosh, this was in, I want to say 2006, so about 15 years ago. And this was right at the infancy of me getting into SEO. It was like the year before I started my company because I started SEO National in 2007. So I had been dabbling in SEO and was perfecting my craft at it, but it was entirely on the side. It was entirely out of my own interest, my own passion projects. Where That's how I got into web design and internet marketing in general was, was just my own sites. And so one night we were sitting there, my wife, was she was a fan of The Bachelor, and she was watching The Bachelor, and she would kind of reel me in on the season finales. And she'd be like, come on, just come watch this one. 
So over the years, I had learned that when they had when they had wrapped up a season, it was, hey, thanks for watching and check back in a couple of weeks when you see who our new bachelor is. And this year they announced a gentleman right at the end. It was, they said, hey, next na- our next bachelor is going to be this Navy doctor and his name is Andy Baldwin. And I thought that was kind of interesting because they said, well, I wonder why they did that. I, my marketing brain started running it and I started thinking, well, I wonder what the reasoning behind that was because it was very strategic. And so then I started looking up Andy Baldwin and and I couldn't find anything, just maybe one website, two websites, maybe three or four pictures, and that was it. And I got thinking about how, where I'm not really the ideal audience, I don't necessarily care so much about who this gentleman is. But if I'm already looking, just imagine about all the diehard fans and all the upcoming diehard fans. And so that night, I told my wife, I said, I'm going to be in the other room for like 90 minutes. And I busted out a website. I found anything I could about him, built out like this unofficial fan site, andybaldwin.net and cataloged whatever pictures and information I could about him and then proceeded to update it here and there over, over the weeks. And, and it only took, you know, a week for it to start showing up pretty prominently. And then next thing I know, it's the top ranking website for the bachelor for this new gentleman. And so I ads on there and it was a little bit of a gravy train for a while for that year. And then I repeated the process next year with another gentleman named Brad Womack. And by then I think ABC caught on because they started pre-registering domains and building out sites for their bachelors long before they went public or at least had them ready. But it was, it was an interesting experience and I learned a lot from it that I still share on the story these days and set the precedents for a couple of things that we do and the strategies now as a company. Wow, it's a great way even just to be able to shift the behavior. It's not just like outperforming them and they're like, oh, we need to do something differently because people can just keep doing this to us repeatedly. Yeah, yeah. So it was fun. Just the experience was interesting because at the time, like I said, it was before I started the company and I was just a web designer that did things on the side and it really sparked my interest. And I talk about, so I wrote a book last year on SEO and in it, the first, like the first line in the book says something like, let's be honest, a book about SEO doesn't sound like the sexiest topic. (laughs) And so I had to I had to, what I had to do when I was writing this book was, okay, how do I educate people uh, about the importance of SEO and how do I help businesses and how do I help the small guys have a fighting chance and how do I help the big guys decide what agency to hire? But then I also recognize and appreciate that the concept of SEO may sound like rocket science or it doesn't have an initial sex appeal. And so I started with some of those fun stories with The Bachelor and then some other sites where I had really good success. It was all during my infancy years of learning SEO and marketing. And so there's like these cool stories, but all of them underscore the value and the potential of SEO as I transition into more of the technical side of it. What was it about SEO itself and the practice and everything and the tactics, techniques and strategies that really drew you towards that versus other forms of digital marketing? I could probably answer it two ways. In in the beginning, it was because my background was originally in design. SEO was fairly new at the time. It, there, there, it was certainly a process, and there were certainly agencies, but it wasn't as mainstream. And so, a little bit of it was that it was new, and and that was exciting. And the way I got into it was, I actually had one of my design clients. So for the first year and a half of of my business was largely just design, and. What happened was I had a design client that said, what do you know about Google? And I said, I know enough that I'm willing to see what progress we can make, but I don't know enough that I feel confident charging you for it. But I also don't want to work for free. So how about we do this? How about 
I initially work for free, but we agree to these goals. And if I hit those goals, then you owe me retroactively. And then moving forward, you owe me a retainer. So that way they're not out anything if I don't succeed, but I'm also incentivized to not fail. And so we ended up, we set like, I think it was like a three month goal. This was like 16 years ago or so. If I remember right, it was a three month goal and I hit it in six weeks. And so I enjoyed the process of learning those new things. And at the time I was just a solopreneur. And so it was exciting to conquer and accomplish things. And, and so I said, well, why don't I apply this to another client? Because there was there was like a tangible win out of it because now the client is, there was a before and there was an after. It's not just, here's your website, you're done. I could see where I contributed to their bottom line. And so then I said, that was exciting. Let's do this for a second client. I took this to another design client, offered them a similar arrangement and had similar success. And both of those two clients are still clients 15 years later. And so that was what got me into it. I think what's kept me into it is a balance of comfort and then also a balance of newness. So on one side of SEO, I know what I'm walking into every day because I made a very strategic effort to stay in my lane. And now I have 30 employees. And the only thing that we focus on is SEO. But with that territory comes design. So we still do a lot of design. And then the algorithms change not dramatically as much as people might think. At the end of the day, it's still core processes and concepts, but they apply, those same processes apply to new models. So now it's good design, but applicable to mobile devices. And then good content, but applicable to voice queries. And so there's like a, a constant newness to it as technology evolves, but all those things just back into core processes of SEO, which I'm very comfortable and knowledgeable on. So I think what's kept me in it is that balance of excitingness and newness, but also a comfort where I'm not thrown off guard every day. So it's that's what got me into it. And then a different answer, what's kept me into it. Excellent. So how do you see SEO evolving over the next decade? Do you think it's going to be more of those on the algorithm update side? Is it going to be startups doing new things in the space? Is it going to be the emergence of new technologies or more voice? What's really going to shift things? I don't know. So far, I don't think really much is going to change at all. There'll be new mediums, like voice is a good example. So my gut reaction is that for the next five years or so, probably not a lot, but then there always is like this wild card concept because technology is evolving so fast, and especially in the last 20 years, that, that it's just bound to happen, that there's gonna be something that we don't know about that comes in and makes an impact. But for now, like if you think about all the possible variations of what search engines have to work with, whether that's content on the website, content external to the website, external credibility of people, mentioning brand names or talking about websites on other websites, like they calculate in all those things. But as new things come along, then they're still probably going to calculate it. They're just going to calculate that same process, but on a new medium. So like with voice is a great example because no website owners and no SEOs are on the other side of the website recording voice drops on the back end to feed to Google. When somebody asks a question, what's happening is Google says, we just got a question. What website can I answer the fat? What can I tap into the fastest that I trust that has good content? And then we will just output it in a voice format. But everything else that goes on behind the scenes is just plain old traditional search engine results, which is good user experience, good content, good speed. What could Google find the fastest? So voice is nothing new. It just outputs it in a new format. 
but the process to get there is not new. And if you think about any other medium, a couple of years ago, mobile was a big thing. In 2016 is when Google made a massive algorithm update towards mobile and still continues to roll it out. But what happened then is if you think about it, it's the same core concepts, which are good user experience and good design. Now we just have to apply that good user experience and design to a smaller device and a smaller screen, but the concepts are still the same. So anything that I can conceivably think of any new technology or new variation of technology is just going to back into those core principles. But it's just common sense that at some point something radically innovative is going to come along that I don't know yet. So why should businesses be paying for ads when you can get sales from search engines for free? And what's the sort of balance there? Like how much to invest in SEO versus paid ads? It's going to depend on what business you're in and what your pro- your price points and your profit margins are. A lot of other marketers, not just SEOs, not just paid ad people, but across the board, it's like a trendy thing to throw rocks at other forms of marketing. And, and I've always been in the middle where I think there's a time and place for any type of marketing. None of them are amazing. None of them are horrible. So what you got to look at is what are the pros and cons of each of those types of advertising? The nice advantage of SEO is that like you own that asset, you own your website, you're building up the credibility of that, you're building up the longevity and the content catalog of your website. And as that kicks in, then your return on your investment increases. You don't have a constant ad budget. You're not always fighting against your competitors on a dollar amount on a cost per click. So there's a whole bunch of advantages to SEO, but the disadvantage is it takes time. It's a lot slower than other forms of advertising, largely because of exactly the reasons I just talked about. Like It takes time to write content, but even before you write content, it takes time to figure out what to talk about and why and what words you can monetize and what's your what's the ideal buyer you want to target what's their buyer intent and what makes them tick so you're like if you do it right you're one to two months into it just to strategize those things out now on the other side if you pay if you compare that to something like paid ads social media ads it's much quicker because you are the main difference between the two is like with organic you try to target based on buyer intent and what are the pain points and what type of questions would the consumer ask and how can you solve those problems with paid ads you're stereotyping your buyer and so with paid ads you can go i want to show this to predominantly men versus women these age groups versus that age group and these demographics versus that demographic so you can go and just like push a couple buttons and stereotype where that ad is going to be displayed in front of a lot quicker you can get a paid ad up and running in a day but then the problem you have is you still have to burn through money for at least a couple of weeks to figure out if the, what ads work and what ads don't. And then if you have success with a paid ad, then you run into things like ad fatigue or the digital marketers that are listening to this, they themselves or a number of their friends every other day on Facebook, you see them posting about, oh crap, my ad account just got shut down. And so you're always fighting against policy changes and platform changes and cost per click changes and more or less competition, or you just get straight up ad fatigue where the ad works for three weeks and for no explainable reason, it just stops. And then you got to start all over and create a new ad and burn through money for a couple of weeks to get that figured out. So it really depends on, do you want to pay $5,000 a month and get traction really quickly with paid ads? Or do you have patience for delayed gratification and pay two or $3,000 a month with organic and not get a return for a while? But once it kicks in, it's way more passive. It's way less drama. 
way less levers to be pushing and pulling and buttons to be figuring out and fighting against ad accounts. So there's pros and cons against any form of advertising. But if you have the ability to give, if you have the financial runway to pay for organic and the patience to give it time to build itself out, it usually has the better return. So I'd love to know how can small businesses set themselves up for success using SEO? If you're going to start on your own, the best place to start is with content because you are a business owner for a reason. You are a subject matter expert or you're hyper passionate about whatever it is that your business is about. So showcase that expertise. If you can present why you're unique and answer the questions and solve the pain points that your audience has in a readable format, and and I'll, I'll expand on that in a minute, then that's usually the quickest win. Because when it comes to SEO, there's hundreds of things that go into it, but they primarily fall into two categories. So one category is what you do on your website, and the other category is what you do externally to your website. And then in between that, you have content. You can put content on your website, and then you can put content on other people's websites. So when you get into those two buckets of internal optimization and external optimization, most of your wins are going to come from that content and external credibility. Now, the one catch to that is that it's only going to be effective if you have a solid foundation to bounce it off of. And what I mean by that is a decent website. And I say decent because you don't have to have the most amazing, visually appealing, off the charts, crazy, fancy design. In fact, usually the most simplistic, bland, clean white space websites perform the best. So what you got to focus on, though, is at least making it mobile friendly and loading quickly. Beyond that, you can stick to the basics of clearly communicating your value propositions, sharing your content and having good call to action. Once you're done with that, then just focus on content. Now, that's if you're going to do it yourself in your small business focus there. Now, there's other things we get into that are more aggressive if you want to start throwing money at it or you want to have other people involved. But as a small business owner, that's the best place to start. Could you talk a bit about the importance of local SEO for small businesses? Yeah, there's local SEO usually implies some sort of emphasis on Google Maps. So when you go to Google and you type in a question, you get a couple types of results. You can have zero to four paid ads at the top. So even though paid ads can technically show up at the top, they have a way lower click-through rate than what comes after, which is either maps or completely organic results. What happens is people get banner blindness where we all know that those are an ad and then we skip over them depending on the industry and the search question that can have the non-paid results, even though they show up below the paid ads can have anywhere from 10 to 100 times higher click through rate. So there's a lot of value in showing up in the or putting an emphasis on the organic. Now, if we ignore paid ads for a minute and focus on just the local maps versus the, the general organic results, then the benefit I'm focusing on local is if you have a brick and mortar location. So if you have a physical address, then you can have huge wins by focusing on that maps area and that map. But here's the opposite of that. If you serve a broader area, because that maps is going to, that's like your secret sauce if you, for for a five, 10 mile radius around your brick and mortar location. But if your audience is bigger than that and you can service a broader range than that, then there's going to be equal value in, in just the traditional organic. So it depends on A, do you have a physical location? that you can take advantage of and leverage in the maps and then be like how big of your audience is in that immediate location 
right around it. So it, th there's a lot of opportunity there, but it depends on what your business model is, what you and how far of an area that you serve. So given the long game of SEO, how do you as an agency owner manage expectations for your SEO clients? I'll answer that two different ways. I'll answer that us specifically, and then I'll answer that for other marketers in general. So at SEO National, we're fortunate where we've branded ourselves pretty well over the years that usually by the time somebody's introduced to us, whether it's by referral or seeing the types of social media content that we push out, they've already been educated on the process because we're very transparent about a lot of things we've talked about. Like SEO is not the fastest thing, but if you have the patience and cash flow to cover it until it kicks in, then here's the upside. So it's not too often that we have to fight against that one negative attribute about SEO, the length of time. Now for other people, I remember in the beginning days of when we were getting leads, it came up every single conversation and rightfully. So the key to it is educating your lead onto why, where the problem arises is if you dance around it. And you're like, oh, you just got to trust me or you can't properly explain why. So I have no problem telling clients, yeah, it, it takes a long time. And if, if that's not the right thing, then that's not the right thing. And that's OK. And usually what happens is that actually builds trust by being transparent. So even if they don't sign, then they end up coming back six months later and saying, hey, I found success on social media ads or I've given up on social media ads, whatever it may be. And so now I, I better understand the need to give this time. And so let's do it. So if you can explain why it takes time, which is, hey, it's going to take us a month to, to build out your buyer persona and research topics that we feel like you can monetize and align those with what keywords you can monetize. And then after that, we got to actually write the content. And so we're two months into it just to actually produce assets. Now we got to push it out, wait for Google to find it and then repeat. And the value is in growing those, that content and assets. And the logistics behind creating that and doing it properly just takes time. So if you're confident in communicating transparently, usually it's not a, a big hurdle to overcome. Interesting. So given all that you've got going on, how do you successfully balance your work with being a devoted husband and father of three kids? I set hard, hard boundaries. So I never give clients my cell phone number. I mean, I even put it in contracts. We're only available Monday through Friday, nine to five. And we're not available on weekends. We're not available on holidays. So I, it goes back to that transparency thing we were just talking about. A lot of people say, how do you not, how do you not stay in touch with clients? How do you not be available to them? And that's not a problem if you set expectations. As far as I know, I've never lost business over not being available on the weekends. I've never had a client complain about it as long as I communicate why. So I proactively set the expectations. So we do really well at before we board a client, we set those expectations. In the contract, we set those expectations. Once they sign and become a client, we set those expectations. Not just about our availability, but we're proactive on what is the next move in the campaign. And my team sends these scheduled emails that says, hi, and my involvement in the campaign is this, and I look forward to sending you this next week. And then next week, when that time comes around for them to send them the thing, then they send it to them. And they don't just send it to them and go, here's the thing, but they actually educate them on what went into creating that asset and why we need their approval on it and what we're going to do with it next. So I set hard boundaries as far as my availability. And when it comes five o'clock i shut off the computer and our office phones are the auto attendants are pre-scheduled to shut off at five i don't check my emails on the weekend i don't have email on my phone i don't have facebook messenger on my phone and so i set these hard lines to to 
be a better service provider to the clients while I'm in that mode and then set expectations when I'm being a dad, when I'm not in that mode. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I love some of that advice. I have to take up some of that for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd love to know how has a failure or apparent failure set you up for later success? And do you have a favorite failure? I don't think I've really been asked that in this exact way. A couple of things come to mind. We had, it's pretty far, few and far between when we don't have success on an account because if I don't think we can drive a return, I tell them in advance, look, I don't think we can drive a return on this. But even though I've always been transparent in the early years, there was a couple of times where there's one retail client that sticks out where I thought we had enough opportunity to diversify their campaign to drive a return. I did have a little bit of hesitancy, but I communicated that to him. So I don't feel bad because I told him what my concerns were, but I was, but we ultimately ended up not succeeding and they did SEO for a year or two and we could see the progress. We could see the increases. We could see things working, but the problem with certain types of retail clients is that if you don't have a good enough profit margin, you have to sell a crap ton of units to pay, not only pay for SEO, but make a profit on it. So that process taught me that we were already pretty selective about clients, but that helped me better understand other things that I need to make sure are in alignment with clients for us to help them drive a return. So now probably the biggest sector that we decline is retail clients. And, and, and that's not to say we don't do retail. We have a ton of retail clients. We just have way more service-based clients because the problem we run into retail is usually one of two things. Either there's an issue with price points and profit margins where if they sell a $5 product and it costs them $3.50 to get landed and they got like a $1.50 profit margin and they're paying us $3,500 a month, that's a crap ton of units to sell. And on top of that, that's a lot of units to ship and pack and the manpower involved to make that happen. So they on retail they have to have a bigger price point bigger profit margin and then the other thing even if they have a bigger price point profit margin they have to own the product because the other problem that we run into with retail clients is if they're a drop shipper a wholesaler or a reseller the random example i always give is if it's a sporting goods store they don't own any of those goods they don't own the brand name to any of those they don't own the brand name to nike they don't own the brand name to adidas and those brands are understandably very protective about their brand and what you can say. So that limits our creative freedom to be able to create content and assets that talk about all the cool things about whatever it is the product is, because those mega brands are going to say, no, you can't say that in that way. So that's made me more confident. And I think to come full circle, I've never had a problem telling clients no when I don't think we drive a return, but that helped me better understand how to communicate it, especially on the retail side. But then at the same time, the upside out of that is now we better understand how to help the right retail clients. And we know how to document, we changed how we document our processes a little bit to do better fulfillment for the retail clients that we, we do fulfill. So I don't regret having that failure. It, it definitely helped on a lot of upsides, but that's probably the one that immediately sticks out. Oh, cool. So what are bad recommendations you hear in your profession and area of expertise? There's a lot. So the, what first, the first one that comes to mind that will never die is there was an old variable on websites called meta keywords. And people will often say, so what the purpose of this field used to be is search engines... In, in the beginning years, we're talking 15, 20 years ago, 
they didn't quite have the technology to digest and comprehend what the entirety of a website was about, what you were an expert on, what product or service you offered. And so it would ask you basically. And so in this field, you would just shove a bunch of keywords. And so it'd be keyword A, keyword B, keyword C, and you just shove in every possible combination of keywords that you think of. And that got abused. And as of, I want to say 2009, if I remember right, Google went on record to say, oh yeah, we haven't looked at that in a long time. And so here we are over a decade later and some people still push and recommend or hear that their buddy said that if you just shove the keyword in a bunch of times, that's going to work. And so that field specifically is completely worthless nowadays. And even if you take that concept and apply it to other areas of your website and shove keywords in excessively because you think it's going to better communicate to search engines what you offer and give you an upper hand, it's going to do more harm than good because Google is now better at understanding the overall context of your website. And so if you have a, a page that talks about whatever your product or service is and you structure it really awkwardly just for the, the theoretical benefit of SEO and search engines and shove a bunch of keywords, what happens is the real customer comes along and they start reading this and they go, what is this? I don't trust these guys as much. This reads like crap. I don't understand it. I can't solve my problem. And then they leave. And then when they leave their website, it's called an abandonment. And that abandonment increases what's called your bounce rate. And the more people that bounce and exit your website, the more Google pays attention and goes, well, that's probably for a reason because it's a bad user experience. So we don't want to look bad sending people to that website anymore. And so then it stops showing your website as higher. It, it sounds super cliche, but just focus on the customer. Write your content based on how it can solve their pain point. I just did a post this morning on this topic. Somebody asked, do I insert this or that in my post? How long should I make my post? And the answer is however long it needs to be. Like if you can solve a pain point in 300 words, but you have this SEO myth that it needs to be a thousand words long, that means you're now going to dilute your message with 700 more words of crap. And so just focus on solving the problem. And then there might be some gimmicks and hacks that get you some short-term wins, but it's not sustainable. And eventually Google is going to come around and say, this sucks. So have the willingness to, to give yourself the freedom to look forward to delayed gratification and just do things the right way. Otherwise, a lot of clients that went down the wrong path of you know, trying to game the system, they end up paying for SEO and paying for their website twice because if they come to us, then we have to clean it up and we have to undo the giant mess that they spent years building. Yeah, that's always been so frustrating, like dealing with people who want to build like a website for algorithms and not paying customers. I'm like, the Google algorithm is not buying anything from you. So like, yeah. why are you talking to them? Just speak to your customer and everything will work itself out. It, it's wild how that how that just persists because people, they just see Google as a sort of monolith. You must attribute to the like <laughs> Google overlords or whatever. Like you have yeah. to satisfy their demand. And even if you look at like, I think the top or one of the top results for like how long should a blog post be? It's like a blog post has to be like 1700 to 2200 words now, which it's like yeah. for most people, they were done at 200 or 300 words. And it's just like the rest is just fluff. And it's like, what are you even doing? You're boring people to death. You're not, it's not like a, a nice long form sales letter or something. It's literally just how many more times can I put nail polish or chapstick or Rubik's cube or whatever my stuff is? How many times can I put the product name in it? How many times, you know, how many keywords can I load up? And it's just, what are you even doing? And then you read stuff like that. And you're right. It's just customers are like, 
what the hell am I even reading right now? Yeah. And people just don't take that into account. They just forget. They get so involved with the algorithms and just forget the whole human side of it. That like you're trying to make a connection with a person and solve a pain point for them, but not appeasing the Google gods. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, what are one to three books that have greatly influenced your life? There's two that always come to mind. One is is Four Hour Workweek, and the other is E Myth Revisited. And it it was interesting because they came into my life at a certain time. I was familiar with Four Hour Workweek, and I had already embraced a lot of the concepts before it was it was a book. But what was interesting is at the time I had a friend ask me to go entertain a conversation with some venture capital investors. And what he was doing is he was building a new marketing company and he didn't do what we did, but it was parallel to what we did. And when he went to take funding, they said, you know what, if we want to consider this, we want to make this a bigger company. So let's combine it with other agencies that do other things like SEO. And so I went and had this conversation with this VC company, ultimately ended up backing out of it because it was just a gross conversation. And that was the best move ever because now we've gone on to grow you know, significantly beyond what they would have offered. But I learned a lot in that discussion. And some of the things I learned were, if you ever sell your business, buyers want to know where the fire is, which is your sales, so they can go pour more fuel on it. And then the other thing is they want to take the keys and run. And so that really helped me understand the value of documenting processes like business owners we all hear that but that was my moment where i actually internalized and said okay i need to embrace that concept of documenting processes because before that we had processes but somewhere on a spreadsheet somewhere on this other doc and somewhere on my head in my head and i consolidated it to a single project management system and that's so maybe that's another thing we talk about here in a minute that's a whole story in itself but when that all happened is I had coincidentally started listening to those two books, 4-Hour Workweek and E-Myth Revisited. And if you're not familiar with what the books are, 4-Hour Workweek tells you, you know, how to maximize your productivity, how to hack and cut corners. E-Myth Revisited tells you that your business needs to be, de be dependent on processes, not people. Because people are interchangeable and you need to have the flexibility that if somebody leaves your organization, you don't lose that skill set. And instead, you can easily introduce another person to follow the processes because the processes don't leave when a person leaves. So what happened was it, it made me realize, like tangibly realize the value in documenting processes. And then that's also for our work, we could make me go, why do I have, I think at the time I had four employees. Why do I have four employees? Why don't I have more? And so within two or three months, I went to something like eight employees. But what I would say is if you listen to those two books, listen to E-Myth Revisited first, because that's going to tell you to define your processes and give you guidance on what you need to consider when you build that out. And I wouldn't listen to 4-Hour Workweek until after you do that, because it, you don't want to hack your processes until you define what your processes are. And so a result of that's when we were able to really start scaling. And that's when we started to be able to fulfill our bigger contracts literally immediately after documenting our processes, which took forever. It was like every other two or three hours every other day for a year, because on top of running the business and doing your existing fulfillment, then I'm still a dad and I'm still a husband. I still have to do my day to day stuff. But as soon as that was done, 
then that's when we had the opportunity to bid on our first like $10,000 a month plus retainer. And I wouldn't have felt confident bidding on that back to the transparency thing because sure, that money sounds nice, but what do I want to do? Say yes and then screw it up and damage our reputation. So having that, the confidence behind knowing we had a good fulfillment model now documented really helped in our ability to scale. And then the second part to that is once we got that contract, there's no way I could have added the two or three additional employees that I needed immediately to fulfill that if I didn't have those processes documented. I could have found the talent and then my full-time job would have been training them for their full-time job. The two books that have always stand out for me are those two, Four Hour Workweek and uh, E-Myth Revisited. Oh, it's a great answer. And I love how you dovetail them and, and, and make a pairing of them, even order it and giving marching orders for which to do first. That's great. Yeah. So if you could have a gigantic billboard anywhere with anything on it, what would it say and why? Oh man, I have no idea. A gigantic billboard. It'd probably be something like, how can I help? And I don't mean that from a business side or an SEO side. Where I found my newer chapter in enjoyment in life is just helping other people. And I don't even mean, it can be on the business side, but it doesn't have to be. But I just find enjoyment in the opportunity to give other people experiences, like facilitating experiences that they wouldn't have been able to, to do otherwise. Um, a couple, a Spitfire, a couple short examples. There was a gentleman that reached out to me that had been following me online for a while and he was from Australia and I'm in Utah. And he was flying into the US to go to Las Vegas and spend a week in Las Vegas. And he messaged me and said, how far is Las Vegas from you? I'd love to meet up if, if we could. And I said, close enough. <laughs> and so I, uh, like I take my, I, I look for opportunities to meet people face to face. And so I, Vegas was only like a 55 minute flight from where I'm at, went and flew in. But what he didn't know is as soon as he offered, showed his interest in meeting up is I booked him a limo and I made reservations at a racetrack. And so I said, I'll pick you up at your hotel around this time. And I showed up in a, in a limo and the chauffeur opens the door and his name's Gary and he goes, Gary. And he just looked so confused. And so he hopped in and I said, Gary, good to meet you. He, he knew what I knew what he looked like. I looked because we'd engaged over the months on Facebook, but this is the first time face to face. And so I said, hop in and he's like, what the hell is going on? And I said, we're going to the racetrack. And so we went to the racetrack and I had paid for him to go ride around in like a Ferrari with a professional race car driver. And I've done similar things like that to other people. And then, but even in other ways beyond that, like there was a couple of years ago, I made a donation where I had one of my assistants call around the local schools in our county that was called Title I schools, which are um, schools where the majority of the, the students come from uh, low-income families. And so I was a beneficiary of free lunches and discounted lunches when I was in junior high and high school. And that was something that, that I could personally relate to. And so when I give back, I don't have... a, a I don't have a go-to charity that I continually visit. For me, it's much more personal. Like I want to know that I have a positive impact in a direct way. I don't, there's nothing wrong with other charities, but for me, I, I don't like the idea of just giving money and I have no idea what the impact, if any, was because I know that behind the scenes there's so much overhead to charities. So I want to figure out ways where I can directly positively impact people. So a couple of years ago, I had one of my assistants call around all the Title I schools in my county and ask them how much lunch debt there was. And it ended up being like 2000 bucks. And so then I called the county and I just gave them a $2,000 check to just pay for everything. And things like that are 
what make me happy are those unique opportunities to give other people experiences that are the, I, I guess you'd say not traditional or not day to day. So it'd, it'd be something like that or, Hey, what sort of unique opportunity is there that I can help you? Oh, that's so cool. I really like that. So in the last five years, what new belief behavior or habit has most improved your life? I got an autoimmune condition a couple of years ago and that's dramatically changed my diet. I was never a horrible eater. I was probably slightly better than the average American, but I wasn't amazing. And that's forced me to pay attention to my diet a lot better. So it's been, I always try to look for the positive and things. So the condition I got is called eosinophilic esophagitis. And basically what it is, everything that I eat hurts. And every everybody that has it can have a different response at a different level. And so some people, different foods will impact them. For me, it's freaking everything. I've yet to find a single thing that I can eat that doesn't hurt my throat, at least to some capacity. So I have to swallow a, like a steroid spray to basically shut down my throat to be able to eat something without some sort of negative impact. But the concept of swallowing a steroid every day is not appealing. And so I try to figure out, okay, what types of things can I eat that don't trigger it at least as much? So I don't have to take the steroid as much, but it's much more, it's been interesting going through that process because it's much more of a mental, mental exhaustion than it is than a physical pain. And that's not to say that it doesn't physically hurt. It's just the, the constant 24 seven thought process of, do I want to eat that because it tastes good and pay for it later? Or do I want to eat that because it tastes like crap, but I won't hurt as bad later. It's been an interesting mental marathon, but me always trying to find the positive in things. At the end of the day, I certainly wouldn't want this if I didn't have to have it, but I'm not too disappointed because it's made me look at a lot of things a lot differently that I probably wouldn't have done otherwise unless I was forced to. Wow, that's incredible. So what is one of the best or most worthwhile investments you've ever made? And feel free to consider the word investment in the broadest terms possible if you like. I don't buy too many materialistic things. Most of my disposable income either goes into some sort of an like a traditional investment or my bigger ticket items are things that will provide opportunities for my family or create some sort of legacy. So two, two bigger investments are we bought a pool two years ago and I don't necessarily care about a pool so much, but anybody that I know that has a pool with younger kids say it's like the best thing ever. And it's proven to be that. And we got lucky, I guess if there's any, there's all these crappy stories about COVID, understandably, but we got lucky a little bit by putting the pool in just months before that happened because when everything went into immediate lockdown and there was literally nothing to do, then that was a blessing to be able to have something to do with my family. So like another big ticket investment is we bought a lakefront property a couple of years ago and that worked out really well because a couple of years after that, I had established a relationship with the family next to us and I saw that I went up there in the middle of the winter. So this, the place where our, our property is in the winter, it shuts down because it's way up high in elevation and it snows and it's freezing cold. And so very few people are up there in the winter. And I went up there in February of last year in 2020 and just to drop off some supplies or something. I don't even remember. And I saw that the neighbors next to us had survey stakes in their property markers and so I had established a relationship with the neighbors for no particular reason. They had an, I would never see them there, but I saw the last name on their, there was like this old rundown trailer, the property, they'd had this trailer on there since the fifties. And I looked up that last name and there was 10, 
10 people that I could find with that last name. And I called all 10 of them and I, none of them answered. And so I left a voicemail on anyone that I could. And I said, Hey, my name's Damon. I think I own this property next to you. If this is you, call me back. And so a couple weeks later, one of the guys called me back and said, Oh, I, my wife asked if I ever got back to that guy that left a message and I forgot. So here I am. And so that birthed the opportunity to establish enough of a relationship that when I saw those property stakes, I could text him and I could say, are you guys selling your property? And that opened a conversation, a behind the scenes conversation where the the property never even went on public market. And I was able to score this great property now that my kids can play on. I can pass on to my kids, my grandkids. There's almost no lakefront lots left. It's at a place called Bear Lake. And, um, like you just can't score that anymore. And so those are the types of things that I, I put my money towards are the unique opportunities that can provide like some sort of ongoing opportunity or legacy for my family. Oh, yeah. Uh, sounds fantastic. Oh, Damon, this has been just a fantastic and enlightening conversation. I'm so glad you're able to join me. So this brings me to my last question of the day. Uh, and that is, what's the kindest thing anyone has ever done for you? I'm gonna have to think about this one. The problem I run into is that I'm not an asker and it's usually the other way around where I try and help people out and then and then they'll ask and return you how can I return the favor and I usually don't have an answer how can I I don't know the I don't have anything that really prominent that stands out I'll tell you what matters a lot to me when it happens though is people just following through on their word and it can be just little things whether it's a friend offering to have a play date with our kids and we all get busy and we all have friends that flake out but Things like that matter a lot to me. It doesn't matter how significant the gesture is, but just the fact that you honor your word. So I think I have a lot of appreciation for for people that just come through on whatever they offer me, whether it's big or small, to actually follow through or at least set expectations if the plans change. So I don't know. That's an interesting one. I'll think about that. I guess I'm going to pass on that one a little bit and just say in general, I appreciate people that just are transparent and stick to their word. No, that's huge. That's huge. So, well, Damon, thank you so much again for joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure to get to speak with you. Yeah, Pacifico, I appreciate the opportunity to chat. Good luck with the podcast and I appreciate the opportunity to hang out. Yeah, thanks so much. Thank you so much to all of our listeners for tuning in to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you found us so that others can find it as well. And follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at the LUE Podcast or visit our website at theluepodcast.com. And if you'd like to support this show even further, I'd love to invite you to become a patron of the show. For as little as $5 per month, you can help us continue to produce high-quality shows with amazing guests like you heard today. To become a patron, please visit patreon.com slash theluepodcast. We look forward to having you tune in next time for the next episode of Law, the Universe, and Everything. I'm Pacifico Soldati, Wishing you peace, love, and awesomeness.